Morning, y'all. We, uh, we made it. So I, I went back and looked. We started this series in January, so it's been about a year as we've been studying through uh, this letter. Uh, it's rich. It's deep. Uh, Justin and I were talking earlier, uh, one of the churches, the guy we listen to from time to time, they spent nine years in the letter. Uh, not one. Right, so there's, there's a lot here, and the complication, at least for me, is to try and summarize something of this depth, right? To, to put it together in some takeaways. Paul could have ended the letter with something like, hey, see you soon, love Paul. Right, but he didn't. And he put together, a, it's, just a, it's a beautiful doxology, we just read it, we'll go through it. Uh, but the implication then is that he had a purpose. Right? There was something specific in mind when he put these words together. And my position is that he just wants us to worship. And he wants to move us uh, not to a one and done moment, but into a lifestyle of worship where Christ is more and more precious to us and there's a cycle, right? And, and we just, we yearn and we uh, desire the day that we're gonna get to see him face to face, but he wants to push us further down that path. So my ask of you as we read and we study these words, um, think about it like if you were opening the letter, you read it, probably have a lot of questions as you go through, you get to this, um, but as if you were the addressee, right? You were the recipient of the letter uh, because you are, right? We all are, right? That's the way that the scripture works. Uh, and we're gonna benefit, right? There are all sorts of good reasons God gets glory, but we just get nourished. We get strengthened as our roots go deeper into the gospel as believers. And if you're not a believer in Christ, uh, this message is very much for you. This letter is very much for you. Um, it's everything that we are called and designed to be, right? Is in fellowship with the Father through Christ. So let's get started. We're going to look at the doxology, uh, three parts. Three, because that's easy, right? Easier to remember, but three parts. Uh, first, it's object, right? What's it about? Second, it's subject, right? The specific focus point. And then third, it's result, right? So object, subject, and result. So we'll start with the object. And as I studied this, it was sort of like going back to school, trying to figure out the grammar of what Paul was doing. Looking up definitions, uh, if you notice, if you read it, it, it is not a, uh, it's not a complete sentence. It's just, it's broken up, it's choppy, there's dashes, it, it's sort of a jumble. And it took me quite a bit of effort to try and follow what Paul's points are. I'll start with just a definition. Somebody asks you, what's the doxology? Or what is a doxology? You say, well, it's a song, I know that. Right? But what, what is it? It's made up of two words. Uh, doxa, it's a Greek word for glory. And ology or logia, in its simplest form, is word. So glory, word, right? That's the nature of the song. We are singing songs that are designed to give glory and honor to God. And that's Paul's purpose here with this doxology. So look at verse 25. We'll start there. Uh, Paul begins with, now to him who is able to strengthen you. And he wants us to ask the question, maybe a little bit rhetorically, who's he talking about? Right? Rather than naming the Lord, he describes the object of our praise as somebody who can give strength. Right? So he doesn't say now to the Lord who gives strength. He goes now to him who is able to give strength. So the focal point is, right, is I'm trying to identify the one who is um, the object of this doxology. It's somebody that gives strength, Paul starts. Are you guys hearing a little bit of an echo? Is that just me? 
Are you guys hearing that? Maybe. All right, we'll see if we can sort that out. Um, if you think of human rulers, even good ones, just by way of contrast, they take in order to rule, uh, even good ones. So if you think about a king, right? A king's going to take taxes, king's going to take tribute, uh, but all of those things are necessary right, to support the kingdom. Uh, people may be pressed into service. You might be a knight, you might be a serf, you might work on the land, but the rulers and the kings take in order to support and govern. And that's best case scenario, right? In our day, it's true, we all pay taxes, right? Something of valuable is extracted from us. It's necessary to support the government. That's God's design. Paul actually touched on that earlier in the letter. Um, so even best case, wise, well-intentioned rulers take. Worst case scenario, right? History is filled with tyrants to think absolutely nothing of taking, squashing, oppressing, just to exalt themselves, and so Paul's whole point here is one of contrast now to him who is able to strengthen. Which other sovereign, who do you know, right, that it's the nature of the sovereign ruler to give? Right, limitless resources. We're the ones with the need, and he's the one that gives, right? He strengthens. And that's critically important, right? When you begin to think about everything that Paul's been talking about in this letter, how does salvation work, right? What is the nature of God, righteousness, and sin? From our standpoint, we're the needy ones. Right? We just bring brokenness. We bring sinfulness. God reserves for himself the right to be the one who gives. Right? Gives of himself, gives of his life, gives of his son, gives of his treasure to make us part of his kingdom. Right? It's the nature of the sovereign one that we serve, right, as believers that Paul highlights, the object of our praise is the one who strengthens. Right, it's all about him. That's the point of the doxology, right? We're going to go through some of the details. We're going to spend much more time on its subject. But its object, everything that it's about, it's the one who gives. That's point one. All right, let's transition a little bit. Point two, right? What's the subject of the doxology? Right? The, the short answer to that, it's, it's the gospel itself. Right? In other words, if we focus on everything that went into, right, as we understand it through Scripture, all of the implications of the gospel, going back to the beginning, um, we think about the implications that Christ has on our lives as believers, as followers, it informs marriages, it informs parenting, it informs relationships, friendships, uh, it moves us to mission, right? We have that that Mike just walked us through, right? The gospel has just an, almost an unlimited number of implications, right, for our lives, right? It's rich and it's deep and there's a lot to it. And as we think through that, right, and we live it out and it changes those relationships, right? People come to Christ, life changes, people are healed, Things are restored. Ultimately, relationship with God is established right, through salvation. Right? As you begin to think about everything the gospel is and calls and does and requires of us, your thoughts can't help to go back to the one, well, who designed that? How did that come to be? And gee, it seems like a lot of detail, right? It's, it's complex when you sort of go down the rabbit hole of thinking everything in Scripture that's been pulled together to give us the gospel in Christ. 
And so the point Paul makes here, and he still hasn't named the Lord, is that this strengthening comes according to the gospel of Christ, right, in verse 25. So both the source and the means or the channel of the strength is Christ. And it's a person. And notice how bold his language is here. Have, have you ever gone to, you know, when you share the gospel, if you're a bit on these mission trips, and you say, well, I'm going to tell you about my gospel. That's a little possessive, right? Maybe a little presumptuous for most of us. Not for Paul, right? Now to the one who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel, to the preaching of Jesus Christ, right? Paul wants us to understand and his readers to understand he did not hear the gospel the same way that you and I did from someone else, right? He's actively persecuting, tracking down, imprisoning, jailing, and doing worse. And Christ appeared to him, just crushed him, right? turned him into who he is, who we have the record of as the, the apostle that he uh, is now ministering to. And so Paul says, it is my gospel according to Christ, right? According to the one who appeared to me. And one of the major themes of the letter that he starts, if we were to flip back to chapter one, when Christ reveals himself, when God reveals himself, it's fundamentally righteous, I don't know if you guys remember, it's been a while, but in chapter one, uh, Paul says that the, the revelation of God, the righteousness of God is being revealed and it has one of two effects, right? It's healing and salvation for those who are redeemed or it's judgment and ruin and it's wrath, right? That's the only two options that we have before the righteousness of a holy God. But Paul here with the church in mind is meditating on the righteousness of God that's made known to us and that strengthens us. He doesn't wipe us out. So if you put those two things together, God himself gives strength. He does it through his righteousness by uniting us to Christ. Right? It, that can't help but produce strength, right? The union with Christ and God's righteousness, that's the source. That's where the strength comes from. And some of you know what I'm talking about, right? Lives being reordered uh, dramatically, maybe very slowly over time, but your focus and your affections and your priorities and your investment, things change, right? And the strengthening of Christ remakes us, right? It's long. It's enduring, right? It's persuasive, right? It starts out being very alien to us, Right, but, but through his grace, it becomes a strength. Paul goes on to indicate that the gospel has been hidden from men for long ages, and he uses the term mystery. And, uh, one of the commentaries I was reading, a guy named Douglas Moo, he defines mystery, like what specifically would someone like Paul, right, or a Jewish thinker, a rabbi, what specifically would they have in mind? And it's an event in the end times that has already been determined in the mind of God. So in some sense, what God has designed for the end times already exists in heaven. Uh, I thought a little bit about Revelation 13, where it talks about names being written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the earth. Right, so we, we are sort of stepping outside of time here as best we can with this idea of mystery, right? that God had in his mind the gospel and everything associated with it 
and determined it to be, right, in some sense that we can't quite get our arms around. We're, we're linear, right? We kind of start with A and we go in one direction. We just follow the clock and the time. God designed something like this. He designed the gospel in eternity past. He intended to disclose himself and primarily his righteousness to us through the incarnation of Christ. That's why we sing the songs that Moy picked, right? That's why the incarnation is so precious, is that the righteousness of God is manifest and is a person, right, who invites us to repentance, to relationship, right, into his salvation. You know, the seeds of God's plan in the gospel, so far as we understand, go all the way back, right, to Genesis 3, where sinful men and women reject God's teaching and his command. And God says to the woman, right, that your offspring, your descendant, is going to crush the serpent's head, the one who brought about this sin, right, in this fall. And so you have just in, in the opening pages of Scripture, and then all throughout the Old Testament, and then revealed in full in the New Testament, right, these threads, these strands, gospel seeds coming to fruition and being revealed in full and in clear. But at the time, right, prior to Christ, and certainly in Genesis, nobody had clarity on how it was going to play out. It wasn't revealed. It wasn't clear, right? We had hints. They had hints. Why is that important? Right, Paul's saying, my gospel is given right, to the Romans, to anyone else who reads his letter, according to Christ. And in, I'm switching gears here now in, yeah, no, 25 still. Kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings made known. Why is this point that it was hidden important? Right, well, maybe the most obvious one if no one had or understood or had received Christ, they were not able, certainly to understand, but too, to experience the righteousness of God in the form of Christ. We do. Right? God had a timeline in mind. He had a purpose in planting the seeds of the gospel, right? in embedding Christ all throughout the Old Testament prophecy, but it wasn't clear. Right? It was mysteriously hidden. Right? And he did it for some reason, Right, that he doesn't need anyone else's counsel, he doesn't need anyone else's permission for. Um, but he builds a hunger, I think. Right? He builds a desire when we begin to study and see the full scope of Scripture. And so without sort of the, the, the benefit of the gospel, but just reading these three verses, Paul says it was hidden, and then in the next verse... Well, now it's been made known. You're kind of, which, which is it, Paul? <laughs> there's, a, there's a tension there. So it's been made known through the prophetic writings. Um, there's a shift. There's a huge, huge shift taking place with the revelation of Christ because what was hidden and was there all along, but not seen, not understood, and certainly not experienced, is now clear and available and powerful, right? And strengthening for those of us that, that receive it. Paul's thinking about not only... Genesis, but things like Isaiah 9, you know, unto us a child is born, wonderful counselor, mighty God, right? The folks that read those words, they had some understanding. They didn't understand who he was in full. Isaiah 53, by his stripes, we're going to be healed, right? Those words were there, but the clarity was not. 
Then if you fast forward to this side of the cross, right? Jesus' life and ministry. You remember when he's on the road to Emmaus with some of the disciples and the conversation there before he sort of fully discloses himself to them. Uh, Luke records the conversation. And he says that beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in the scriptures all of the things concerning himself. How cool is that? That the prophesied Christ that no one understood is actually now the one to turn on the light and explain, hey, that was me. It is me. Right? And he's now been revealed. Uh, Peter actually uses the words, I'm going to read one of his passages here, that the Spirit of Christ carried along some of the folks who wrote the Old Testament prophets. Right? So again, we're sort of struggling a little bit with time and how does all of this work. But the Spirit of Christ moving and planting and hinting and now revealing Right, pointing out his own Easter eggs, so to speak, in the Old Testament. I think that's pretty cool. So here's the, the quote from Peter. Right? This is in First Peter. Uh, I'll read it to you, but it's in verse 10, right? chapter 1, verse 10, if you want to read it. Uh, he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, right? inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, right? Peter's writing to the church, and he's saying those Old Testament scriptures that prophesied about Christ were Christ. And they searched and inquired. They didn't quite get it. That's okay. It was for you. It's Peter's point. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then here's a really cool tagline, things into which angels long to look. Right, that there's some mystery, there's some attraction, there's a lack of understanding on behalf of the angels too. Right, but P Peter's explaining the same mystery that Paul is talking about in this doxology, that we have these Old Testament prophets inspired by the Spirit of Christ himself, not understanding the fullness of what they were doing, but now being revealed because God chose to strengthen us with his own righteousness and with his own son to give us that experience of union with him. Paul takes it a step further, right? and he says that God designed the gospel to be hidden in plain sight all throughout the Old Testament for a purpose, and this was to reveal Jesus at the time of his choosing so that people from every nation would come to faith and obey the Lord as they absorb what he's done. Right? And there's, there's a ton packed into this, but this is coming from 26. Right, that the gospel has been disclosed and made known through the prophetic writings and been made known to all nations. That's everybody, right? That's everybody, according to the command of the eternal God to do what? To bring about the obedience of faith. Right, so the idea is, that Paul boils down to these very few words, is that the gospel is designed to be presented in such a way that people begin to understand there was a God who called earth creation into existence. He created two people. There was a fall and there was a plan. Right? There was judgment, there was law, there were prophets, there was prophecy. There's the genealogical descending of Christ from the woman. Right? There's the incarnation through the spirit, there's the birth, there's the death, there's the resurrection. And all of that to be revealed in such a way as to say, wow, that's not the way that I would have done it. Probably couldn't have done it. Right? That there's this huge sweep 
thousands of years, right, of salvation history where God conceived of all of this before time began. Why? So that Gentiles, you people, <laughs> we had a Jewish pastor for a while. That's what he said, you people. Um, right, so that we would behold the scope, right, in the design of what God is doing and say there is no other way, no other person who could have conceived of such detail to be revealed the way it was in the person of Christ. Right? And so my proper response then is to entrust myself to Christ in faith and obedience. Right? That was the purpose, Paul says, of the hidden nature of the gospel, right? of its mystery, so that you sort of pull the cloak back, right? the light bulb comes on, and you see it, like, wow, wow. It has God's fingerprints on it. And so people are moved to faith, moved to worship, moved to obedience. That's the purpose for the hiddenness and the unveiling. <laughs> now, we've got to break a little bit of this down. It would have been one thing for God to disclose himself and his righteousness, and that's it, full stop. I think a little bit about Isaiah, who had the vision of God's temple, he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, right? And he just hit the ground. Uh, when Jesus revealed himself on the night that he was arrested and said, you know, who are you? And said, well, I am. And folks just hit the ground, right? The righteousness of God would be death for you and me, right? We could have had sort of pure and unvarnished righteous revelation of God, and that would have been all she wrote, we would have been consumed in God's righteousness. So not only does he disclose himself, but he brings about our understanding and our experience of his righteousness in a way that doesn't end us. Right? He brings it about in such a way that we begin to see his goodness and his righteousness is something that's worthy of praise, it's worthy of a song, it's worthy of a life lived in obedience, Right? That we have faculties, that we have the movement of the Spirit to enter into fellowship and relationship with Him. Right? So it's not only disclosure, right? but it's equipping and it's fashioning and it's changing you and me right? to not just sort of merely survive, but to thrive in the relationship with Him. Right? One of the Old Testament titles for God right, is my righteousness. As we become united to Christ, our righteousness. Right? Life and salvation, it's kind of the same thing. Right? We get the joy and the blessing of his presence and his call and his healing and the hope that we have you know, in him, which is so much better than had he only disclosed himself in righteousness, and that was the end of the story. Right. So let me just pause. I think most of us in the room, I would guess, are believers and are familiar with the Christian gospel, but I've been talking about the righteousness of God and what it'll mean to the unbeliever. And I don't think I would be doing Paul's letter justice without trying to at least acknowledge just the baby steps and the mechanics of the gospel. Right. But we are separated from our holy God by our own sin. And sin is far more terrible than we can really imagine, right? As he is far more righteous than we can imagine. And the wages of sin is death. That's why we get sick. That's why this world is broken. That's why it's 
difficult, right? So both physical and spiritual death flow from our sin. The Bible says that that had to be addressed, right? Sin has to be atoned. The wages of sin is death, right? And that God in his mercy, we just talked about it, gave his own son who had no sin. And not only to take on, Scripture says he became sin. That's just crazy. But sin had to be atoned, right? Death had to take place before a holy God. So sin is atoned, judgment occurs. It's not sort of just held in suspension, takes place, right? Christ absorbs that willingly at the Father's call. Isaiah says it was the Father's will to crush him, right? This was all part of God's plan to crush his own son, right? And then to hold out, right? To make available forgiveness and atonement, right? Because atonement's been purchased and now it's available to us on the condition, right, that we own and agree with God. Yeah, we're sinful. I'm sinful. I can be specific about my sins, God. And the sort of the underlying assumption that I'm in charge of my life, and that's why I chose the sin. I can do what I want. Right? God demands that confession and that reckoning of us. And if we're willing to repent of that, right, to believe that the grace that he holds out to us in Christ covers us, then he unites us with his son. Right? And his righteousness becomes a source of strength, not a source of fear and judgment. Right? Someone else said this, that God himself is the one who protects us from himself. Right? That it's his nature to judge wrath and it's his nature I'm sorry, to judge sin with his wrath and his nature to save and protect from wrath. Both of those things go on at the same time. So if you have not been clear on that point in the past, right, the gospel is the subject of the doxology. Right? It's the central theme of this letter. Be reconciled to God. Right, and at the end of our time today, we'll ask some of the elders to be in the back if you want to flesh that out. Uh, this is not just sort of, you know, Santa Claus on a rooftop. It, it's the reality of Christmas. Right? So that's why the doxology subject is the design, right, in the unveiling of the gospel with all these threads sort of coming together in the person of Christ. It takes time to get it, right? We get it sort of at a point when we come to faith, but it's depth and it's beauty, gosh, we continue to grow in that. It becomes richer to us over time. We understand more deeply how precious he is and the gospel is. And so I, I think this is exactly why Peter, if go back to his passage, ends that little explanation with this is something that even angels yearn to look into. So, I'm gonna speculate just a little. The Bible doesn't give us a perfect understanding of angels, right? We don't have perfect insight, uh, but we have some, right? We know that they stand in the presence of God and they do his bidding, 
Right? They see him in a way that you and I do not right now. They're far more powerful than people. Right? Every time a person encounters an angel in scripture, what's the first thing that the angel says if they don't wipe him out? Because that happened too. Right? But if that doesn't happen, the first thing they say is, fear not. I have good news of great joy. Right? So there, there is power and authority radiating off of these angels any time that they are clearly presented right, before people in Scripture. They're not born the way that we are. They were created in some other fashion. Uh, they are far older than you and I are. I, I think their minds probably work far better than ours if minds is even the right way to think about it. So when you're an angel in God's court for millennia, fully, well, not fully, better equipped to understand God at some level than, than you and I are, and you see God create this little blue ball hanging out in space somewhere. I'm like, well, that's weird. Why would he do that? And God creates these little creatures that are running around just making a disaster of things. I'm like, did he talk to you about this? Like, what, what's with the ball and the little... That's weird. And wow, he seems kind of angry with what they're doing. But, I mean, who wouldn't? Look what they did. I mean, angels wouldn't do that, right? They wouldn't come into God's presence with that sort of, I'm going to be God. Right? They, so anyway, they, they're sort of looking at what's happened in creation. Fast forward a couple thousand, few thousand years, and the angel sees God direct his son to say, you need to go down there. Why would he go there? Look what he's got here. Why is he going to go down? He, he went down there. Look at that. Ooh, he's little. Have you ever seen him do that before? No. No. Well, I wonder what he's going to do. Oh, look at that. He's sick. He's awkward right now, like he's a teenager. <laughs> what is he doing? I'm going to gloss over the cross. I can't. But again, from, from the angel's perspective, what in the world? Right? Why would our king step into that and give himself to them? Why would he unite them to himself? Angels don't have that. Right, so these weird little rebellious creatures at the cost of the king's life right, now enjoy his righteousness. Right, there's a fellowship that they have with him that we don't. And so when Peter says they yearn to look into these things, I, th I think that's why. It's weird, right? I think there might even be sort of a jealousy in a way that's not sinful, right? But there is right, more preciousness in the gospel than we give it credit for, right? We're too familiar with the word, too familiar with the concepts, right? But that's the nature of the gospel, and so the only proper response, right, to the revelation and the understanding that God brings about of himself in us, right, when we come to faith, 
is to entrust ourselves to him, right? To believe, right? To obey, right? Faith and obedience, that's the point of the gospel for us, right? All of its richness, all of its threads, all of its depth, right? God designed for a purpose, right? It's good for us, it's rich for us, he gets glory out of it because of the way that he did it. I think, I, you know, again, speculating a little bit, I'll get back to the text. We're going to get down, you know, whatever, 20 millennia down the road, and somebody's going to see something new in the character of Christ. I'm like, wow, how did I not see that before? That's sort of the nature of the gospel. Right? More and more opening up. So that's the gospel, that's the subject of the doxology, right? So we've thought about, about the gospel, hopefully your mind goes back to God, the object of the doxology, right? So object, subject, what does that result in us, the third point here? Praise, that's the result of the doxology, right? We sing glory words to God, that's the point, so by verse 27, in this sort of weird, broken, non-sentence, Paul has finally gotten around to naming the one of whom he speaks, the one who is able to strengthen according to his gospel. He calls him the only wise God. Can't you hear sort of the inspiration in those three words? Only? Wise? God. Every word, right? Just loaded with meaning. And so Paul calls attention to the wisdom of God and his skillful plans and his works because there's no peer for that sort of thing. Nothing in our existence or our creation can we begin to compare to what God has done in creation and in the gospel. God maximized glory for himself through right, Christ, through Christ's life and ministry and atonement right? and think about that just a little bit. The through is not sort of an empty word. In some strange universe, if it were possible for people to come to be reconciled, to be saved with God, and it didn't involve Jesus, and then you see Jesus come and die and resurrect, you wouldn't need him in the same way, right? It would diminish what he did. But everything, right, the intensity of God's glory is maximized through the life and the atonement of Christ because our need is so great. Do you see how the glory sort of comes from the need that God designed. Isn't that cool? Glory does two things. We talked a little bit about the word. Uh, glory is absolutely the radiance and the expression of God's splendor and his majesty, right? what the angels see and behold. It also involves our opinion of God's glory. It's a two-way street in the sense that we see it, we behold it, and we acknowledge it and confess it, right? So he is who he is without anything that we do. We don't add to it. But the word glory involves us affirming and recognizing and praying and say, yes, Lord, you are glorious and beautiful and radiant, right? So when you hear those words, in excelsis gloria deo, right? You read about glory. You and I have a role to play, in the expression of God's glory. It's in understanding and in confessing and in moving to obedience because of who he is. It's just gonna deepen. 
Right? He's gonna satisfy our curiosity and our thirst in whatever way he deems best forever. Right? It's like uh, there, there's a song, right? an, an ocean without shores, maybe a spring that's never gonna run dry. There, there is a satisfaction and an unveiling that's just gonna keep on keeping on. It's gonna go on forever. And then he's gonna do it again. <laughs> um, a few more words here, right, before I kind of get to the end. But hold those things in your mind, right? The, the doxology is about God by focusing on the gospel and moving ourselves to praise. Right? And you just see the inspired words of Scripture, right, in these three short verses that Paul puts together to capture those. So while I was... Uh, reading, studying, meditating on this passage in Romans and the uh, passage in 1 Peter, I started to think about what a conversation might have looked like between Paul and Peter on this point, uh, talking about how it is that Christ strengthens them, right? them sort of just sharing, swapping stories. Um, Peter might have said something like in this conversation to Paul, you know, I called him Christ and I meant it. I knew that he had the words of life. I told him that I would follow him to the death. And then I failed spectacularly. And I actually denied him three times the night that he was arrested after saying those things to him. You know, Paul, you can't imagine how dark my thoughts were. And I wrestled with guilt but he forgave me. We, we had breakfast on the beach one morning when we talked this out. Uh, he restored me. He strengthened me. He's still strengthening me. Right? He's still using me. I see him every time. Now, when I read the law and I read the prophets and I think about how things have come together, I, I, can't, I can't help myself, right? He's all that I think about now. He's all that I can talk about. I think Paul might have responded with something like, I know the feeling. Now, I was certain that he was a blasphemer. Somebody that was just starting a heresy. Can you imagine that? Me convicting Christ of heresy. I was convinced that you people should have been imprisoned, maybe worse. I was actually there when Stephen was murdered, and it was the right thing to do, right? That was my thinking at the time. And I was on this trip, right? I was headed to Damascus to kind of continue in that work, and, and he appeared to me. I wasn't, I wasn't the same person after that. I can't really describe what happened right, in its fullness, but um, I, I couldn't see. Right? There were these weird sort of scaly things on my eyes. It was just dark. I couldn't eat. Right? My entire world just been crushed. But he remade me. You know, I can't, I can't believe how wrong I was. And I can't believe how clear things are now. Can't imagine doing anything else. 
People need to know about him, right? We've got to get the word out. Peter would say, yeah, you know, maybe we should write some of this down. You know, I know it's better, right, when you can talk with people and you like to argue Paul and whatever, um, but it's, you know, it's a little bit better face-to-face, but if we wrote this stuff down, right, we could send copies out, maybe the word would get out faster, might help, what do you think? Paul says, well, you know, funny you should say that. I've been working on a letter to send to the, the folks in Rome, I'm gonna go visit that church. Um, I want them to have a read, kind of a first read on the gospel before I get there to explain some of it. So I've been writing it down. Uh, Well, actually, Tertius has been writing it down. He's helping me. He thinks it's a little bit dense. I think it's pretty good. I think it's pretty good. So we're close. But we're still ironing out some of the details. Peter says, yeah? Okay, cool. Well, let me know when it's ready. I like to read it. So sure. Yeah, it's close. But, you know, again, funny... It, it really ends on the same conversation that you and I are having right now, right? How God uses us and he strengthens us to advance his gospel and get his glory. It's kind of the same conversation. So let, let me try it out on you. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed. And through all the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about obedience through faith. To the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Peter would say, wow. Well said, Paul. You have a run-on sentence there. (laughs) But it sounds pretty inspired. It's not bad. So let's get back to it, right? Let's keep telling people. So we're going to pray. We're going to worship. If God has moved... Right? If he's calling you to a deeper experience of the gospel, you ought to act on that. So I'll, I'll ask the elders to be in the back. Um, if you want just to start a conversation with somebody, if you've never come to Christ, you, know, you, you walk out of here at your own risk if you don't want to deal with that today. Right? There is much grace, much mercy. So now's the time. So let me pray. Father, we, uh, we stand in awe of you, of your wisdom, of your righteousness, of your love and your mercy. Lord, we're so thankful that you sent Christ to walk among us and to take on flesh, and we have beheld his glory. The glory of one and only is of the Father. We've seen his mighty work submitting to the penalty of death and then just transcending it and returning to life again. Lord Jesus, you are the master of life and death. And all authority on heaven and earth has been given to you. And as your gospel goes forward throughout all of the nations, including the ones that Mike talked about earlier, Lord, let it do its work here in this room, in this moment. 
May you get glory, Lord, and we may, may me, excuse me, we, may we be healed, Lord, through your gospel. We love you and we praise you. All glory to you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.